Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Country Music Hall of Famer Kenny Rogers once said, Music is what I am, but photography would probably be second. The country music legend was also an accomplished portrait and landscape photographer. A collection of his works is on view now at the Booth Museum in Cartersville, a show titled Through the Years, Kenny Rogers' Photographs of America. Booth Museum director Seth Hopkins will tell us about the exhibition later this hour. First, one of the longest-running free music festivals, the Atlanta Jazz Festival, is back in person with an incredible lineup. Headliners such as the legendary Herbie Hancock and Masigo along with some of Atlanta's own great jazz artists. The three-day festival takes place at Piedmont Park over Memorial Day weekend. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about the lineup, Camille Russell-Love, Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, and... Atlanta-based jazz pianist Joe Alterman, who will perform in the festival. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having us. Always a pleasure. Now, as I mentioned, while we've got some world-class history-making acts in this lineup, there's a strong showing of great Atlanta talent, too. Kebby Williams is an Atlanta native, so is Kathleen Bertrand. Julie Dexter has been an Atlanta transplant from Britain since 1999. And, of course, you, Joe. Camille, what is the selection process for each year's Atlanta Jazz Festival? We always look to see if there are legends like Mr. Hancock, who are available and are willing to come and present at our festival. And then we try to 
create a mix of what I would consider to be emerging jazz musicians who have a national reputation. And then we don't have to look very far from Atlanta to round out our lineup with the outstanding local musicians that you've already mentioned. Mm. So who are some up-and-coming artists you're excited for audiences to hear at this year's festival? Well, you already mentioned Masego, and he's very popular among the younger crowd. When I said to some people, I'm going to have Masego at the jazz festival, they were like, oh, wow, we're so happy about that. I'm also excited about Naya Izumi to perform and the Baylor Project out of New Orleans, who are, you know, four times Grammy nominated, a husband and wife team, you know, are are some that we're looking forward to. Over the years, I've learned a few simple things, no matter how hard you try. Disappointment life will surely bring There's no perfect person Hurt is gonna come your way And then Makaya McCraven, who is a percussionist, a drummer, who is playing with everybody in the uh, popular music scene. So, you know, just... We, we, again, we try to get a, a good mix so that everyone will know that they're welcome at the festival. And so we, you know, again, we go for locals and then we go for emerging jazz musicians and then the legends that we're going to have there. Like Eddie Palmieri, aren't you excited about him? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joe, how did it feel for you to be included in the 45th Annual Atlanta Jazz Festival? Oh, it's such an honor. It's an honor to be a part of this call evening. You know, I uh, I have all these mentors that played at the Atlanta Jazz Festival and used to play at places like Pascal's that are no longer around. And this is a way to kind of continue the lineage and to be a part of something that's really special. When I lived in New York, people would talk about the Atlanta Jazz Festival. And it's something I'm really proud that existed in Atlanta. And it's just an honor. It's to attend it and a special honor to be a part of it. Can you tell us about some of the songs you'll perform? Yeah, I I guess what I like to do in my sets is I I like to mix things up with basically some originals, some, some songs that were written by the people who wrote the standards but are not quite as well known as some of the other songs they wrote, and also some fun kind of funky tunes. I mean, my piano mentors are Ramsey Lewis and Les McCann, and I can't not play some funk. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) 
And we have spoken before about the beauty of your intergenerational friendships with the likes of those gentlemen. Camille, how will this year's festival differ from past years? Well, we are expanding the festival to three days instead of two days. And we're also concentrating all of the performances on one stage. We have heard in the past that, you know, having a lot of performers was great, but people were losing time and not being able to see performances because they were navigating from one stage to the other. Uh So I think that we're going to be uh, improving the overall festival experience by having just one stage. So we're excited about, you know, showcasing everybody, all of the performers to everybody who's at the festival. How did you and our new mayor, Andre Dickens, work together to create this year's Atlanta Jazz Festival? Well, when Mayor Dickens came on board, I had to immediately go to him and say, Mayor Dickens, I need some money. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you weren't the only person who came to him with that. No, but my needs were pretty immediate. And he said absolutely that he's a big fan of the Jazz Festival and he wanted it to continue in its present form. So, you know, I just went to him with my plan and explained to him what I was doing and why I wanted to do it that way. And he said, fine, move forward. So... Uh, He'll be at the Atlanta Jazz Festival. I'm not sure if he'll be every day or just a few days, but he's very excited about the Atlanta Jazz Festival. He recognizes how important it is to the cultural landscape of Atlanta and how it is an annual tradition on Memorial Day that needs to be continued. So welcome from our new mayor, and I can imagine what a relief and boost it was for you to continue as you have. Why is it important to keep this festival free each year? The Atlanta Jazz Festival provides an opportunity for families to come out and hear some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world perform for free. It's a way for them to celebrate graduations and family reunions and just community. And one of our office's main objectives is to make sure that Atlantans have access to high quality cultural experiences and keeping the Atlanta Jazz Festival that way provides just, you know, access, democratic access for anyone and everyone who wants to come, except for the people who want to bring their dogs. Oh, no (laughs) dogs allowed. Yeah, no dogs, no scooters, no bicycles. But no, all kidding aside, we really want to allow all Atlantans who are interested in seeing live music performed at its highest representation to be able to, you know, come to the Atlanta Jazz Festival and get that experience for free. What can you tell us about the 31 Days of Jazz program you recently announced? Well, 31 Days of Jazz is one of our most popular additions to the festival, and we're glad that we're back and able to present 31 Days of Jazz in May. So we have, you know, Marta Mondays. We have Wednesdays at the top of the Jazz in the Sky at Colony Square. We have 
Fridays at um, the Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson International Airport. So there is jazz happening somewhere every day during the month of May. We also collaborate with city council persons to actually present neighborhood jazz series out in their communities. So we have five of them scheduled this year as well. So to get all of that information, you should go to atljazzfest.com. Camille Russell Love, the executive director of the city of Atlanta's Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, and jazz pianist Joe Alterman. More information about this weekend's 45th Annual Atlanta Jazz Festival is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll celebrate the tiniest creatures among us with the author of Superfly, the unexpected lives of the world's most successful insects. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. When we think of flies, irritating and annoying may be the words that immediately come to mind. Not so for the biologist Jonathan Balcom. He invites us to put away our prejudices against flies and regard them non-judgmentally. Balkan's new book is Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. The author joins us now via Zoom. Jonathan Balkan, welcome to City Lights. It's great to be here, Lois. I love the title and confess that Curtis Mayfield's song began playing in my head when I learned about your book. Great choice. Thank you. Your book, What a Fish Knows, drew praise from no less than the Dalai Lama. He appreciates your regard for animals as sentient beings who experience joy and pain. Would you tell us about your specialty as a researcher? Sure. My specialty is ethology, which is a branch of biology that focuses on animal behavior. 
uh, ethologists especially like to observe and study animals, preferably in their natural setting, where the behavior that you can see tends to be more authentic. Whenever we take them into captivity, it can uh, somewhat skew the reality of their behavior. Um, so, but ethology is a, is a relatively new field of biology and a 20th century field. It's really exciting to me. I really enjoy watching animals. I never get tired of it. And the more I l learn, the more we learn paradoxically, the more questions there are to ask. Hmm. Um, I read that your research focuses on studying the consciousness of other creatures. Consciousness is a is a really fascinating phenomenon. It's something we take for granted, but uh, consciousness has probably evolved at least twice and perhaps several times through evolutionary history. Vertebrate animals are all conscious, and now we have good evidence that octopuses and squids and their relatives are conscious, and that evolved separately. And uh, there's also some evidence that insects as well, and probably some other groups of animals are consciously aware. Just another word I want to mention, Lois, is the word sentience, which is the capacity to feel. And that's something that kind of goes hand in hand with being conscious. So things like being awake, having emotions, having feelings, feeling pain, feeling pleasure, uh, having cognition, the ability to think, to reason. Uh, flies have an attention span, for instance. So certainly uh, there's indications that these tiny animals have experiences. Hmm. Early in the book, you make the point that if one were to survey humankind of animals we most dislike, flies would make many top 10 lists. And you've just enumerated on some reasons that it's important for us to reconsider that. Why was it most important for you to write this book? I care about animals. I want them to flourish on this planet. And uh, flies are a glittering extravaganza of diversity. Uh, there's 160,000 described species, and that's just the described ones. Uh, entomologists estimate that there's probably five times that many that are undescribed. There's a huge diversity, phantom midges, picture-winged flies, crane flies, bot flies, uh, big-headed flies, small-headed flies, long-leaded flies, cactus flies, the list goes on. There's over a hundred families and most of them are obscure. And if you look at one under a microscope, as I've done, uh, they are exquisite in their, in their complexity, their beauty. Um, just a, the mere fruit fly, that little tiny fly that we often feel is a pesky member of our kitchen, you know, <laughs> fl buzzing around the fruit bowl. And we wonder where they come from. I, I, I admire their resourcefulness that they can end up in our kitchens. But if you look at one under a, a dissecting microscope, so you can see it up close, the, the legs, the symmetry, the little tiny spots on the wings, uh, the eyes, the mouth parts, just magnificent you know, creations, if you want to think of it that way. Jonathan, are you familiar with Levon Biss? No, I'm not familiar with that name. Well, he's a renowned photographer from the UK. And recently in Atlanta, there was an exhibition of his photographs where he enlarges their images to, I don't know how many thousands of times, and really has come to view them as the most beautiful creatures. I thought your paths might have crossed. 
unfortunately not, but I've made a note of the name. And uh, in the course of researching my book, I've seen quite a lot of photos of flies. Uh, I have a beautiful big uh, book that has over 2,000 photos uh, by a, a biologist here in Canada. And uh, it's just such fun to go through the, that book. Uh, I've seen a photo micrograph of the proboscis of a, an ordinary house fly. You know, this is the mouth part. It's a wonderful tool that this fly has when they land on your skin. They're actually tasting through their feet, but they also put down this spongy mouth part uh, on a stem. And uh, under an electron micrograph, the complexity is just awe-inspiring. Uh, and this organ functions both as a, it's sort of like a squeeze, squeegee mop. So it can, it can express liquid to then lap up food. Um, and of course, it has to act as a, as a sort of a vacuum cleaner as well. So <laughs> it's remarkable, uh, the, the functional complexity, but also the visual complexity of these structures. You point out that insects are a marvel of miniaturization. And they share eight of the 10 body systems we have. In listening to you describe the beauty of these flies a moment ago, I'm curious about how you observe them in research. Well, in the course of researching this book, I, I did a lot of field work visiting biologists in their labs and uh, spending time in the field. I'm, I'm a nature lover, so I, I love to be out hiking and I go hiking every week. And uh, part of my, one of my projects was to allow certain flies to bite me uh, who I had not permitted to do that if I could help it, such as a horse fly, mm -hmm. which is quite a big fly with pretty impressive mouth sawing mouth parts. And uh, I, I allowed a horse fly to bite me so I could experience the whole thing from start to finish. And just watching them do that was fascinating and, and feeling the sensations that I got from that. Also a stable fly. They're smaller than horse flies, but boy, do their bite, does their bite hurt. Curiously, when I was prepared and steeled myself for, for this experience, it didn't hurt nearly as much. And I got a couple of nice photos of a before and after and how bloated that belly gets when they fill up with blood. Oh, well, how do you study the brains of creatures so small? And I guess I wondered, do you observe dead flies under the microscope? You know, studying the minds of flies is, is actually quite a growing field. I mean, insect brains are differentiated. They have structures called mushroom bodies and they have a central complex. They have a protocerebrum. Uh, st studies of various different insects show, show signs of cognition and awareness. Uh, wasps, for instance, recognize their, each other in the colony by their faces. And if you mess up the faces with digital manipulations, the wasps don't recognize them and don't allow the other ones to enter. <laughs> uh, ants recognize, appear to recognize themselves in a mirror. There are many examples of tool use in wasps and bugs. And of course, the honeybees are famous for their waggle dance. But to your question about how do you study the mind of a fly, I'll give you one example. These I mentioned attention span a little earlier. Uh, what these scientists in Australia will do, for instance, will they will tether a, a fruit fly. Uh, so the fly is flying in a drum and the drum rotates and they can, they can uh, unfortunately for the fly, there's electrodes. So the, the, the scientists are monitoring um, brain activity and then they rotate the drum. And if there's an X that comes around each time, the 
the there's a burst of activity in the fly's brain when it regards this X. But interestingly, if the X keeps coming around monotonously, it becomes boring for the fly, and the there's a, the burst of activity in the brain becomes less and less each time. But then, if you introduced a circle instead of an X, all of a sudden, then there's a, a renewed big burst because it's a new stimulus. So that kind of um, habituation and getting used to and getting tired and loss of attention is is a, is a is a hallmark of, of having an, a conscious awareness. So these studies, uh, that's just one example of a way of probing into the inner mind and the inner cognition of a fly. That sounds like a tic-tac-toe game. <laughs> it does. With X's and O's. It, it, in Australia, is that the scientist who goes by the fly guy? Uh, actually not. That's somebody else. I emailed this uh, scientist who does the attention span studies recently, and uh, um, he, they, they're probably colleagues. The the fly guy, Bry the fly guy, I saw his <laughs> TED talk, and he talked about, uh, he, he mentioned all sorts of things about flies. But uh, one note that I recall from him saying is that if you, if you like chocolate, we can be grateful to flies, because uh, the only known pollinator of the co cocoa plant which produces chocolate is a tiny little midge, uh, a midge being a fly. Yeah, well, okay, that I was saving. I'm glad you got to it because, <laughs> th no, that's okay, Jonathan. That's where my tolerance began to grow in um, all that you've written about these creatures. Um, when you mentioned the scientists observing the fly tethered, is that something you would not do? Because it sounds like a tether would be, uh, if not painful, definitely restraining. Yeah, uh, you know, it raises the question, can a fly feel frustration? I, I can tell you that rejected male flies are more likely to consume alcohol. Uh, this is, this is again, fruit flies. It sounds kind of human of them. And, uh, but fruit flies go for fruit, and of course, fruit, rots and ferments and it does produce alcohol and flies use use alcohol as a tool um, not only do rejected males turn to alcohol sometimes uh, which may not be in their favor um, but female flies if they if they're if they're at risk of being parasitized by wasps or they've been parasitized they are likely to consume more alcohol because the alcohol has a toxic effect on the parasite and it can help to protect them it's an example of self-medication in an insect it is fascinating would you sh share some of the celebrity names of flies given them by entomologists? Flies have some fascinating names. Um, there's the Beyonce fly, which actually was coined by Bry the Fly Guy in Australia, <laughs> who we just mentioned. And uh, yes, he named this fly Printhina Beyonce. Um, the fly is gorgeous and has a bright yellow abdomen. There's, uh, I, I don't know if it's a fly, it may be a beetle that has Kate, Kate Winslet's name in it, Kate Winslet eye. There's even, even a Donald Trump eye. Yeah, I uh, was fascinated by that one in particular. Doesn't he have like a yellow come over? <laughs> I know there's some yellow and orange in there, I, I believe so, yes. And, and, and I don't remember if it has a stern facial expression, but that would be <laughs> fitting. Uh, you know, there's other flies that have, scientists do have a lot of fun naming, naming animals. And with flies, if you study flies, you're very, if you go in the field, especially in the tropics, you're almost guaranteed to find new 
undescribed species every time you put out a net. So, you know, for instance, there, there's bee, a couple of bee fly species are named for the sounds they make, Apolysis humbug and Apolysis zizixensis. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a genus of crane flies with very long mouth parts called Elephantomyia. And then there's a couple of blowflies. These are ones that are attracted to and help to clean up rotting bodies and, and other waste products. And their names are Califora vomitoria and Califora morticia, which I think are lovely creative names. Oh, yes. Charles Adams would approve. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, here with biologist Jonathan Balcom. His book is Superfly. The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. There are many examples of humor in this book. Would you share the windshield joke? Yes. Uh, what is the last thing to go through a fly's mind when it hits a windshield? The answer is its butt. <laughs> a very uh, irreverent joke, but... Uh, I, I like it because it does imply that a fly has a mind. Yeah, and I admire the humor you display in the book. A subchapter heading is Frequent Flyers. Yeah, flies are not named flies for nothing. They're superb aerialists. I guess that uh, the majority of animals airborne in the world at any one time uh, are probably flies. Uh, they are superb flyers. They have only two wings. All, almost all, pretty much all other flying insects have four wings. The, the, the rear wing of the fly, they had them ancestrally, but it's been modified into a, a baton twirling type shaped drumstick with a knob on the end, uh, which is called a halter, and it provides balance and stability during flight. But, you know, just the, the, the humble fruit fly, the fact that they can land on a surface on, on the ceiling and run along. Um, there are flies whose wings beat at over a thousand times per second. Uh, flies use their wings to court and to attract mates. Uh, males will fan a female. They will create air patterns. There's even a fly. Uh, this blew my mind when I learned it. I wasn't aware of it when I began researching this book. There's a fly whose wings are asymmetrical. Hmm. So the, the males have one wing a little bit larger than the other. And, you know, there's any number of theories to, to try and explain why that is. None of them may be correct. Uh, but the flies use the wings to sing songs or they make they make these high-pitched sounds, which, which are probably a fly's equivalent of a song. Hmm. And uh, so it, it could be that it has a musical effect, but there's also a theory that by having a handicap, a fly may, a male fly may impress a female that, hey, you know, I've got these uneven wings um, and yet I'm still in great shape and I'm able to court you and try and attract you. So maybe you might want to have some of my genes. Hmm. I found it very difficult to read about the mosquitoes, black flies and midges. Yeah, really. Why should they exist? Yeah, well, nature's uh, a complex thing, and uh, different species evolve according to opportunities. And, you know, blood, for instance, is a very rich protein source, and there's a lot of it around on the earth. 
Uh, I estimated that there's 4,600 square miles of human skin available to mosquitoes. That's a pretty big habitat worldwide. And so perhaps not surprisingly, um, and if you add goats and sheep and cows, which, and, which we breed in huge numbers, uh, we've expanded their, their natural habitat. So mosquitoes are an example of a group of flies that are probably doing very well thanks to the human presence. And uh, yeah, they, they're opportunists. Flies uh, are entrepreneurs. Uh, they're extremely adaptive and mosquitoes are an incredibly successful group of, of flies. Yeah, but okay, can we distinguish their worth from the other pollinators? Well, I would say one area that fly that mosquitoes are extremely valuable is is elements of food chains. I, I can assure you that not every animal would want mosquitoes to disappear. A lot of animals feed on them. If you see swallows flying around in the air, I used to study bats. That they eat a lot of mosquitoes. So they're a very, very important food source. And, and of course, if that mosquito happens to have successfully taken blood from another animal, then uh, the, uh, the lizard or the bat who catches that very full mosquito is gonna get a, an extra uh, protein meal. <laughs> so I hadn't thought about that before researching the book, but it occurred to me, yeah, that's right. That some of that stuff gets passed on. It, it all gets passed on in ecosystems ultimately. So. Um, you know, ecosystems work by complexity and uh, organisms are opportunistic. If there's a niche available, uh, they tend to fill it. And as I say, blood, uh, including our blood, is a very, very rich potential food source. Oh, let me tell you, I have provided many a rich meal for mosquitoes throughout my lifetime. Let's talk about filth and decay. Would you first tell us about the button with a cartoon you received from a friend? Yes, the button has a, a very crude little cartoon drawing of a fly. And if, if I, pardon the, the language, but it says, uh, we'll work for <laughs> And uh, it speaks to, you know, there's obviously a pun there, but it does speak to the attraction of some fly species to to uh, waste products from other animals. You know, we were just talking about blood. Well, um, poop is a very, very, also a very valuable source of food and also a place to lay your eggs and grow your young for many species. And flies have certainly taken advantage of that. Okay, newfound appreciation. Um, your writing is witty and clever as evident early on. And then we reach the sentence, Fly sex comes in 50 shades of brown. What do we know about flies as lovers? Yeah, they really seem to like sex. Um, <laughs> there's foreplay, there's gift giving, there's cannibalism, there are serenades. I mentioned songs. Uh, there's complex genitalia. Uh, there's even giant sperm. Some species of fruit flies, the males produce giant, giant sperm. This is thought to be a product of sperm competition, where if you have a big tangle of spaghetti-like sperm that's seven times as long as your body, uh, you're going to make it very hard for any other male sperm to penetrate and, and, and fertilize the female's eggs. Uh, uh, that's perhaps uh, more like reproduction than sex. But uh, yeah, flies, um, a lot of male flies do really cool dances and, and displays for females. Some of them do semaphore displays with their with their beautiful patterned wings. And the dance fly males uh, have to be very careful when they approach a female. She's predatory and she'll be quite happy to have him for dinner. Thank you very much. 
And uh, the dance fly males have evolved to try and deal with this by catching a, a, another food source and giving it to the female. So she's uh, both well-nourished and happy and preoccupied while he hopefully, if he has, has his way with her. Uh, some males have taken to wrapping that present in a silk wrapper, um, presumably so it preoccupies the female for even longer. So he has more chance of getting away without being that female's next meal biologist and author Jonathan Balcom from our conversation last summer. More information about Superfly, the unexpected lives of the world's most successful insects, is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, we'll hear about the photography of country music legend Kenny Rogers on view now at the Booth Museum in Cartersville. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Country Music Hall of Famer Kenny Rogers once said, music is what I am, but photography would probably be second. The country music legend was also an accomplished portrait and landscape photographer. A collection of his works are on view now at the Booth Museum in Cartersville, an exhibition titled Through the Years, Kenny Rogers' Photographs of America. Joining me now via Zoom is Seth Hopkins, Executive Director of the Booth Museum. Seth, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Was this exhibition already scheduled for the Booth Museum before Kenny Rogers died in 2020? No, it was not. It was really an outgrowth of his passing and his estate uh, being interested in exposing people to more aspects of his life and his career. And because we were fairly close to Sandy Springs, where he lived out his final years. Uh, we were approached about doing the exhibition with the estate, and it was an opportunity that we were really excited about and jumped on with both feet. Mm. Would you tell us about Kenny Rogers' history with photography? When, when did this interest begin? Well, I think he was interested in photography from the time he was a fairly young boy. He had a box camera uh, when he was pretty young, maybe middle school or high school, but he got serious about it in the 80s. And he was actually given as a Christmas present one year, an in-home workshop with a gentleman named John Sexton, who was the last uh, assistant to Ansel Adams before Ansel passed. And one of the greatest landscape photographers in the country and also a great darkroom printer. Hmm. And he came to Kenny's house three days before Christmas in the mid 80s and spent time with Kenny getting his darkroom organized and printing some of the uh, photographs he had shot. 
also talking about different equipment to use in the field and particularly large format cameras, which are very difficult to use and are the kind of camera that Ansel Adams used. And Kenny took that as a challenge to really learn to use that piece of equipment and to produce great photographs with it and then to produce great prints in the darkroom. So what you're describing is serious interest. This goes beyond hobby when he wanted to learn from a protege of Ansel Adams. Absolutely. You know, Penny said at various times that he was an impulsive obsessive, that he impulsively took on new hobbies and then followed them obsessively. And he once said, I think that photography was his drug of choice. <laughs> he also said that when he was in the field making photographs, he didn't have to worry about what he was wearing, what his hair looked like, what his voice sounded like that day, and so on. And so he was really able to put down his guard and really enjoyed just being Kenny Rogers when he was photographing. And I think that's why he loved it so much. Very liberating for him. His landscape work really is breathtaking. Incredible colors he captures in the photo from Death Valley National Park. In addition to John Sexton, who were some of his other mentors or teachers? Well, I really only know of two, but the two he had were really the only two he needed. You know, I've described it as when he decided to become a photographer, he got the two best guys on the planet to mm -hmm. teach him. John Sexton, who we've mentioned already, and then Joseph Karsh. Oh, my. Who, uh, you know, is the most important portrait photographer of the 20th century. And I could argue that he's the greatest portrait photographer of all times. Matthew Brady might come from the 1800s to fight him to the death over that. But Karsh shot many of the presidential photographs that are in our gallery here at the Booth Museum. And he shot the image that made Winston Churchill's persona of the bulldog come through in photography. He had the opportunity to go to Kenny Rogers Farm, Beaverdam Farms here in Athens, Georgia. And Kenny asked him to come shoot his portrait as a commission project, but also asked if he could turn the tables on Karsh and shoot Karsh's photograph while he was there visiting. And so that was a tremendous learning opportunity as well. And that Karsh posed for him was all the more extraordinary. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have interviewed Karsh's assistant, since Mr. Karsh is no longer with us, Jerry Fielder, who said that uh, Kenny did a very masterful job of shooting Karsh and that he had better equipment than Karsh had. <laughs> Well, it, you mentioned his box cameras as a child. He liked to use a large format camera. Can you describe how that works and why he wanted to shoot with it? Well, I'll answer the second part first, which is when John Sexton was there visiting him for that Christmas workshop in his home, he told Kenny, you know, based on the complexity of that equipment and his lifestyle and that he often might be running from place to place and trying to shoot a few pictures here and there, that uh, he might be better off with a smaller medium format or 35 millimeter camera. And certainly he had great examples of both of those. 
you know, he bought the best equipment he could get his hands on. But I think, again, Kenny took that as kind of a badge of honor and a challenge to learn to master the large format camera. And that's the one that you see in movies where they show photographs being made in the old days, where they would have the hood that they would go under. They would be looking through a viewfinder in which the image that you're shooting would be upside down and backwards because of the way the mirrors line up and trying to compose a photograph that way. You then insert the film and expose the film and then take the film back out one at a time. So you have to be very careful about what you're doing. It's very time consuming. It can be disorienting. And so Sexton had suggested, maybe not, that's not for you. And Kenny said, it darn well is gonna be, and I'm gonna make it so. <laughs> and so he did. Absolutely. There are hints in some of the photos in your show that the photographer is someone unusual. For example, the shot of the Lincoln Memorial comes with Kenny's testimony that he shot it at 2 a.m. And you can see the silhouette of someone playing guitar near the statue. Do you suppose that as a touring musician, Kenny Rogers was privy to some unique perspectives on the world he moved through? Well, I certainly think that is true for sure. And in an interview I did with John Sexton, he was not able to travel to the opening of the exhibition, but I was able to uh, talk with him. And he said, you know, Kenny was like the Energizer Bunny when uh, they were working together and did so frequently after the initial workshop that I've mentioned. He would travel with them on the road and uh, they would seek out the most interesting places to go shoot during the day before the concert that evening. And Kenny was so obsessed, he would often be running late. And, you know, they were worried he was going to miss his handoff from Dolly Parton on that tour a couple of times because he was out shooting with John Sexton. You know, Sexton said, normally you'd load up in a car before sunrise to get out there and get the best images. But when you had Kenny Rogers, you had a helicopter standing by. <laughs> and then uh, if they were going to go back to Kenny's house to develop the film they had shot that day, they would have a helicopter to take them from the venue to the airport. Kenny's jet would be standing by. They would fly the jet from there to his near his house. And a limo would be there to pick him up and get him to the house so that, you know, he describes when they had a show in Tacoma, Washington, two hours after the show was over, they were back in his Beverly Hills home developing film. My goodness. You mentioned Dolly Parton. Besides photographing his celebrity friends like Dolly, George Burns, Elizabeth Taylor, and many more, he also took pictures of working miners, cowboys, and police officers. How does he showcase these workers in his photos? I actually think that that body of work that you're talking about might be the most poignant and powerful in the exhibition. Kenny grew up fairly poor in a federal housing project in Houston, Texas. And I don't think he ever forgot you know, where he came from. I was fortunate enough to attend his memorial service just a few weeks ago at Oakland Cemetery there in Atlanta. And many people who worked for him essentially testified that he was a very down-to-earth person, 
cared about everybody who worked with him and for him. You know, lots of stories about when parents got ill or spouses had trouble or whatever it might be. Kenny was there for them. And so I think his humanity really comes through in those images of everyday working people, whether it's the miners or the police officer or the barber. And I think truly, you know, the landscapes are incredible. The celebrity photographs are incredible. But those images are the ones that speak most to me. From the celebrity group, I adored the photo of Ray Charles. It really captures his joyful spirit. What do you think it was about Kenny Rogers' portraits of celebrities that distinguished them from others? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, he was meeting an equal in most cases. And, you know, that would be very different from any other photographer, maybe with the exception of Mr. Karsh, who we've mentioned, that, you know, would have to be somewhat starstruck or intimidated or whatever to be meeting a mega celebrity. You know, there's some very interesting photographs he took of Michael Jackson, for instance. You know, and how many people are going to meet Michael Jackson on a peer basis? So, you know, I think that had a lot to do with it. He also has described that he tried to do either one of two things, which was to capture them the way the public sees them, so their public persona. But in many times, he also tried to capture them as a private person and more the way they saw themselves. So there's a fair amount of psychology going on, you know, in portraiture, as well as they say, you know, every picture has part of the shooter or part of the painter in it. And so Kenny's bringing a little bit of himself into each of these images as well. Indeed. In one of the panels in the exhibition, Kenny Rogers is quoted as saying, I've never considered myself a great singer, but I am a great storyteller. What story of America do you think he's telling us through these photos? Well, I think it's a very multifaceted story, and it has its roots in many places. The wonderful landscapes, as you've identified, are, are absolutely magnificent. Uh, the celebrity portraits you know, speak for themselves a little bit, as well as Kenny, when he would do those celebrity portraits, would send copies to the celebrities and give them their copy, but he also asked for a copy back. And on many of those copies are written notes from the sitter, uh, either making jokes or thanking Kenny for taking their picture. And that adds to the story of the relationship he had with the people that sat for him. And in the story that we were talking about just recently of the more common people. And so I think it's a fairly complete story of America. It's people, working class people, celebrities, and the landscape. And uh, we have landscapes from Georgia to California and everywhere in between in the exhibition, up to Maine, down to the Southwest. So I think it's a, a pretty complete picture. I wouldn't agree that he wasn't a great singer. I think he was a great singer. I think he was being very humble with that. But he certainly was a great storyteller, not only in music, but in photography as well. Seth Hopkins, executive director of the Booth Museum in Cartersville. Through the years, Kenny Rogers' Photographs of America is on view now through July 10th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. 
Finally today, classical music is a hugely competitive field, and one Atlanta organization is helping young musicians gain poise and self-confidence through their playing. The Franklin Pond Chamber Music Competition is this weekend, and the event gives classical music students across Georgia a chance to shine in front of world-renowned judges who could one day influence the students' careers. Jenny Fairchild is the program coordinator for Franklin Pond Chamber Music. Through the medium of chamber music, we help students not only grow in their musical skill and maturity, but also in life skills. Our students will grow up to become business leaders, teachers, doctors, chefs, community organizers, PTA presidents, and yes, professional musicians. We care about the student not only as an accomplished musician, but as a young person making their way in the world. The public is invited to attend the Franklin Pond Chamber Music Competition Sunday at 11 a.m. in Spivey Hall on the campus of Clayton State University. The awards concert will take place at 4 p.m. in Spivey Hall. Admission is free for both events. You can reserve tickets online at franklinpond.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the new Antonori Village Project at the Hambage Center for Creative Arts and Sciences, plus a look into vegan Korean food and Korean heritage with Joanne Lee Molinaro. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.